Welcome back to another episode of Heaven and Healing Podcast. I'm Angela, and if you're watching, then you can clearly see that I am finally set up in my new studio space in my home in Tennessee. Now, I just want to give a preliminary warning. You might hear a bit of an echo at this time. Look, I'm working on it. I set up sound pads all over this room and literally 70% of them fell off the walls. So there's $100 wasted. Good news. Um, another just fell off the wall as we speak. So I'm, I'm working on it. This room is much larger than my tiny little room in my house in Pennsylvania. So... I don't know if you have any tips on how to really make the room soundproof, then I am open ears. Um, I want to mention that a lot of you, you know, don't necessarily always know where to find me. I'm on Instagram a lot. Um, that is your best way to keep up with me if the podcasts aren't coming out as frequently as you wish that they would be. Um, and again, like I always reiterate, this is not my full-time gig yet. So I do work. I do have other responsibilities. I can't put all of the time and energy that I want to into the podcast, unfortunately, at this time. So the best way to keep up with me is to be on my Instagram. I will leave my handle in the show notes. It's my full name, Angela Marie Uchi. And yeah, so let's get started. A lot of you already know what this episode will be about. And I mean, I guess if you saw the title, then you know. But <laughs> if you've been following me on Instagram over the past month, I've been talking a lot about the yoga practice. Um, obviously, speak out against new age modalities all the time. And yoga is one of them. Yoga is something that I used to be heavily involved in. For about six years, um, and during that time, I did teach yoga for maybe two years within that period, so I do know a lot about the subject, and that being said, I do understand the skepticism surrounding this subject, you know, not just for unbelievers where you can kind of expect the skepticism, but also with Christians. I've noticed that this is the one area of occultism, if you will, that people have a really hard time within the Christian community of kind of accepting that it is, in fact, pagan. So I thought that it was really important to address this topic in a podcast episode. Um, this is about... <laughs> 60 hours of research over the past month that I've really put into this episode for you guys. So I really hope that it's helpful. Um, I fell in love with the yoga practice for physical and spiritual reasons. A lot of you have heard me talk about this already. I was very overweight a couple of years ago. 
I say a couple years ago, but really, I guess it was like eight years at this point, which is crazy to think about, but I was very overweight. So I started a physical wellness journey and that's what initially intrigued me to the yoga practice. I was really just curious how I could find different modalities of physical fitness. So I got started and I was kind of already in the shallow end of new ageism at the time. You know, I had seen mediums at this point. I was, um, reading books about how to enhance my own psychic abilities, things like that. So I kind of understood that there was a mystical element to the yoga practice, but I did not understand just how much that was or how deeply I would go with it. Um, But I loved yoga because it made me feel better. Um, You know, it wasn't always about the vigorous strength flows. It was more so about the mental wellness that I felt that it brought me, you know, because yoga encompasses a lot of breath work and visuals and meditations. And really the whole yoga practice is centered around clearing your mind, emptying your mind, which is not biblical by the way, because the word of God tells us to fill our mind with godly things, meditate on the word, not empty your mind. Um, Because if you think about it, when you empty your mind, then you're kind of opening yourself up to any old thing to go on and fill it, right? So that's why the Bible tells us to fill our thoughts with godly things, um, meditate on scripture. But yeah, the yoga practice really did ultimately deepen my attention to other new age practices. I was doing yoga every single morning. It was a ritualistic routine that I had. And I mean that metaphorically and literally because I would always light incense. I always had my crystal tower or my crystal um, altar right in front of me to kind of utilize within the practice the energies from the crystals sort of idea. Um, And if I missed a day of yoga, I felt incomplete. I felt like something was really wrong. And maybe some of you can relate to that feeling like, you would spiral if you missed the yoga practice that day. It's really toxic when you think about it. That's an addiction. Um, And I want to mention again, I was really skeptical when I first started hearing things that, you know, yoga was demonic. It's inherently demonic. It's pagan. It's worshiping Hindu gods, things like that. I thought it was silly when I first started seeing that, but I leaned into it because I knew I had to have an open mind. I think it's really important um, and so, you know, my, my hope with this episode is to educate others on the truth of yoga and to make clear the distinctions of what is considered the yoga practice versus what is literally just stretching, exercising, and moving your body in healthy ways. If you've listened to me before, then you know that I like to kind of begin a lot of my episodes with a disclaimer and um, sort of address the criticisms that I know are going to come out of it right up front. And so that's something that I want to mention now is that I'm not saying you shouldn't exercise. I'm not saying that stretching itself is demonic. We do have a responsibility as disciples of Christ to, you know, have stewardship over our bodies, take care of ourselves. And stretching is very, very important for your limbs, your joints, your muscles, um, your circulatory system. So I'm not saying to not stretch. I'm not saying to not exercise. I'm simply here to educate you on 
the definitions, the history, and the spiritual spiritualism that surrounds the yoga practice and why stretching within the context of yoga is not something that we as Christians should necessarily be doing. So, you know, I don't, I, I kind of hesitate to say that we should or should not be doing things because I am not the authority of you. God is, but um, I am here to offer you as your sister in Christ, you know, the inquiry of, does this really bring glory to God? And so I, I want you to just kind of come back to that question throughout this episode as you take in the information. Um, like I said, it seems out of all new age practices, I get the most backlash surrounding yoga. People often tell me it's just stretching or that I'm reaching and that this is too much, you know, to say that yoga is pagan and, you know, that they can practice yoga with good and or Christ-centered intentions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are just some of the common rebuttals that I get from Christians. Um, and, you know, the more that I have spoken about this on Instagram, I've realized that people really do need the information. And so I want to just put it out there. And this is not as fear-mongering. Again, it's educational. It's, it's an educational supplement for your walk with the Lord. Because we, bottom line, live in a world that is saturated in paganism. And we are ultimately engaged in a spiritual warfare. We are fighting against the principalities of darkness, as we know from Ephesians. And ultimately, as Christians, we should be taking inventory on the things that we do, questioning whether they do, again, truly bring glory to God. Uh, there are a lot of Christians in my DMs who are genuinely confused on what movement is. You know, they might not be fighting me on whether or not they can practice yoga, but they are just confused on what is, quote unquote, okay or not. You know, what poses exactly are paying homage to Hindu gods. As you have heard me say on my Instagram stories, if you're following me over there, um, or, you know, they're just overall really, really lost when it comes to the topic of yoga, because on the surface, it can and does seem like a pretty innocuous practice. It even seems like a beneficial practice. It's absolutely commercialized that way. Um, it's sold that way. It's encouraged that way as a beneficial practice. And look, I'm not going to sit here and deny that there are physical benefits to the yoga practice. I've experienced them myself. You know, I, I know that the science is there, but just because something is beneficial doesn't mean that it's good. And that's something we'll talk a little bit about later. Um, so this episode, I do want to say, is not just for Christians, though it is primarily directed to those who do already follow Christ. Now, of course, unbelievers are more than welcome to listen to this episode, more than welcome to listen to my podcast. I really pray that unbelievers do find my podcast. Um, and so that being said, unbelievers can simply listen to this episode to learn the truth about the practice um, that they may potentially be using as a huge part of their lives, right? As I used to. And from there, hopefully the unbeliever can make an informed decision if yoga is truly something they want to immerse themselves in. Even in the absence of Christian faith, it's worth questioning. And so, you know, that being said, of course, my prayer that the unbeliever who listens to or watches this episode or any episode of Heaven and Healing podcast will ultimately turn to Christ and understand that whatever sense of healing or relief that you may seek in the yoga practice, that can only be found in Jesus Christ alone. And he is right there. He is waiting with open arms for you. And I would just encourage that 
the person listening to this who is the unbeliever, I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John for starters, um, just to simply learn more about who Christ is and what that means. That being said, you know, you're not signing up for any sort of conversion or religion simply by reading some scripture. So I'd really encourage you to at least get to know exactly who it is that you're rejecting so you can, you know, make an informed decision if that is really beneficial to you. Um, And I would pray that God would then use your willing open-mindedness, you know, as you listen to this episode and as you read the Gospel of John as an opportunity to transform your heart and develop a relationship with you. But anyway, on to the yoga thing, right? And that's why we're all here. So let's start with the history and the definitions of yoga. What is yoga and where does it come from? Okay, so this is from the Indian Ministry of External Affairs, which is the government agency responsible for implementing Indian foreign policy. And all sources cited will be in the show notes of this episode, so you are more than welcome to dig into this a little deeper on your own. So the Indian Ministry of External Affairs says that yoga is essentially a spiritual discipline based on an extremely subtle science which focuses on bringing harmony between mind and body. The practice of yoga leads to the union of individual consciousness with that of universal consciousness. Thus, the aim of yoga is self-realization, to overcome all kinds of sufferings leading to the state of liberation or freedom. Living with freedom in all walks of life, health, and harmony shall be the main objectives of the yoga practice. Okay, so that being said, what does the Bible say about freedom, right? As Christians, we should immediately ask ourselves that question and dig into what does Christ say about freedom? Because here in this, you know, definition of yoga, we have clearly stated by the Indian Ministry of External Affairs, the actual government agency responsible for implementing Indian foreign policy, that yoga, the goal of yoga is self-realization leading to the state of liberation or freedom. That is the definition. So, freedom according to scripture. We have John 8.36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay? 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So here we have that freedom comes from Christ. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom is not something that we achieve through self-realization as defined by the Indian external affairs pertaining to the yoga practice. Freedom is found in Christ alone, okay? And 
to the point of First Peter 2.16, we live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, meaning that we don't take advantage of the freedom that Christ has given us through his work on the cross. We don't take advantage of that. We live as servants of God, doing what is holy and pleasing in his eyes. You don't want to be a fragrant, I'm sorry, you don't want to be this stench in the nostrils of the Lord. You want to be a beautiful fragrance in the nostrils of the Lord. And, you know, that being said, I honestly could end the episode right there because there is right away just an absolutely strong opposition of what the yoga practices is curated to be versus what Jesus says we should be. These two things stand in opposition to one another. And so I really could just end right here because that's it, right? You don't want to be doing anything that stands in opposition to what Jesus Christ says, to what the living God says. Um, now, I won't end here, you know, but I just wanted to come right out the gate with that point that the yoga practice is designed as means of self-realization in order to achieve universal consciousness or freedom. And the Bible says that freedom comes from Christ alone. So let's get more into it. Let's talk about the history of yoga. And to do that, I first have to mention Shiva, who is said to be the very first yogi guru in ancient yogic lore, which comes from worldhistory.org. So more about Shiva. He is known as Shiva the Destroyer or the God of Destruction. Really quick, what does the Bible say about destruction? In Joel 1.15, it says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So just very quickly for context, the, day, the phrase the day of the Lord often refers to a time when the Lord reveals his supreme power and authority over human power and human existence. And um, the phrase the day of the Lord can refer to any time of God's intervention in human affairs. So here in Joel 1.15, the phrase refers to God's further imminent judgment on the people of Judah. And there will be a day of the Lord when God will judge all the nations who have rebelled against him. He will bring all things into their proper order and avenge all wickedness committed throughout history. And we have Isaiah 2.12 to further point to that where it says, for the Lord of heaven's armies has a day of reckoning. He will punish the proud and mighty and bring down everything that is exalted. And so we see that obviously as well in the book of Revelation. Um, but the bottom line here is that God Almighty, the true living God of the Bible, of the Holy Bible, is the only one who has ultimate say on anything that is created or destroyed. Okay? Not the God of Shiva or the Shiva God, whatever. And this, the biblical context, is, is so much more than just mythology because we can actually find archaeological... I can't speak. It's been way too long since I recorded. We can actually find 
archaeological evidence supporting these and other claims of the Bible. And so I just wanted to mention this because you can find in any given example of all things, you know, of how all things, all gods, all practices, and all doctrines surrounding other religions and other worldviews, you know, other spirituality, how it is all in innate direct opposition to the Christian worldview. And yet, they are also similarly comparative to one another. Funny how that works. So back to Shiva. Um, Shiva, the destroyer, is considered the supreme being in Kashmir Shavism. Really quickly, just want to say this. I'm going to really poorly pronounce a lot of the things mentioned in this episode, and I do want to apologize in advance for that, okay? So Shiva is considered the supreme being in Kashmir Shavism, and that is one of the major traditions within Hinduism, and we will talk more about that in depth in a moment, one step at a time, um, more on Shiva, but just keep that expression, Kashmir Shavanism, in the back of your head for right now. So in Hinduism, the universe is thought to regenerate in cycles every 2,160,000,000 years, and um, I want to say that this number was speculated very differently across varying sources that I found. Um, it seems as though there is no concrete answer there. It's almost as if we can't actually measure 2 billion years or something. Imagine that, you know, we have grainy footage of um, the local gas station, but somehow the Hindus know that the universe regenerates every 2,160,000,000 years. So like I said, this number was really speculated differently across varying sources. Um, and that's because this is all ultimately rooted in mythology. Unlike Christianity, unlike Christianity, which has proven historical documentation. But I digress on that point for now. Shiva destroys the universe according to Hinduism, at the end of each of those cycles, which then allows for a new creation, or Brahma. So it is said that Shiva taught yoga to the, quote, seven great sages, also known as the Saptarishis. I will again put all of these sources in the show notes so that you can read this for yourself. But it is said that Shiva taught yoga to the seven great sages so that they could pass their knowledge along to humanity. Um, and the seven sages are known, are told to be the seven mind-born sons of Brahma, who is the Hindu god of creation. So we have Shiva, the Hindu god of destruction, and then we have Brahma, the god of creation. Now, what does the Bible say about creation? I'm always going to bring this stuff back to what the Bible says. The Bible says in John 1, verse 1, the gospel of John testifies to the radical unity of creation and God through the word, where it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John 1.14, Jesus is the word. So creation starts with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God, and Jesus is the word. So that is creation. 
through the Christian lens. Yoga is inherently Hinduism, okay? We see that here as the story goes that Shiva was the first guru or god to teach yoga, right? Um, and that was for the purpose of passing knowledge to humanity. So we hear right there that there is a designated purpose to the curation of the yoga practice, to pass knowledge to humanity. Sounds very similar to something else that happened in the garden, does it not? Um, so yoga is inherently Hinduism, and therefore it has no place in the life of a Christian. Um, as a comparison, I wrote down this is similar to how Christians have no business worshipping the writings of Aleister Crowley, for example. And, you know, that's not to say that we shouldn't and cannot study these things for the sake of understanding opposing worldview, um, you know, to further affirm our Christian theology and for the sake of apologetics, because scripture does call us to prepare for defense of our faith. We see that in 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So understanding these different modalities, studying them, that's okay. You know, it helps us prepare our defense. But when it comes to implementing the practices themselves in our own lives, as anything other than something that we know only to refute, well, Scripture says you can only serve one of two masters. Okay, that's in Matthew 6, 24. This isn't me telling you you can't do this, you can't do that. This is me simply regurgitating what Scripture says is true, and that you can't have two masters. You can't actively practice or pursue paganism and be a Christian. And again, that's not me casting judgments on you or anybody. That's not a spirit of religion, which I have been accused of, right? That's literally what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 10, 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is literally what the Bible says. So this isn't a matter of, oh, you're making things too black and white, which I've gotten a lot of. You're making things too black and white. Why do things have to be so black and white? I'm not making it anyway. I am reiterating what the Bible says because I know that it is true and I don't lean on my own understanding. Because when I was leaning on my own understanding, you know what? I loved yoga. I never thought I would give it up. But as I came to know the Lord, I understand that he knows better than I do. And when we say, well, you know, things make me feel good. I, I can do this. I can do that because X, Y, Z, you know, I have good intentions. I love Jesus. So it's okay. I make, I make the yoga practice holy. That is predicated on an assumption that we know better than what scripture says. And that is a very... <laughs> very bold position to take to assume that you know better than God especially as someone who is Christian 
So what I pray people understand about my speaking out against yoga and, you know, any new age practice is that I'm not interested in being right. I'm only interested in affirming God, God's word. I'm only interested in affirming that God is right to anyone that says otherwise. This isn't about how I feel. Okay. And it's not even about how you feel. This is about the deception of the enemy. This is about truth. And most importantly, like everything that I do, I really try to just honor the Lord in all of it. And that comes from having scripture as the launching pad for what I do. Enough about me. Um, Given some of those preliminary definitions in history, recognizing that yoga is derived from Hinduism, okay, that leads to the next question. Of course, what is Hinduism? All right. So what is Hinduism? It's a religious worldview surrounding the foundational concepts of oneness and pluralism, which is very contradictory to say oneness and pluralism. But, you know, the self-refuting worldview of of Hinduism is a conversation for another time. Okay. Um, Moving on. Hindus understand the, quote, divine, as they as they say, is, you know, existence, pure being, light of one consciousness, which we are all individual manifestations of. So they understand that as the divine. And from there, they understand that the quote divine, one, manifests in different forms, two, um, can be understood and worshipped by various means, whereas the Bible says there is one narrow road, right? And then three, speak to each individual in different ways to enable them to not only believe in the divine, but to experience and know the divine. So here we have a quote. This is per HinduAmerican.org. And that is a website and organization dedicated to helping Hinduism, um, sorry, helping Hindu Americans and quote, advocate for policies that enhance the well-being of Hindus in the United States, secure the human rights of Hindus around the world, promote peace, prosperity, and pluralism in India. So this quote is directly from HinduAmerican.org, and it says, Those who continue to discount yoga's roots in Hinduism need to look not much further than the names of various asanas, which are poses, that pay homage to Hindu sages and Hindu, Hindu deities. There are many, including Hindus, who claim yoga is, quote, universal and cannot be tied to a religion. Unfortunately, this line of argument demonstrates a limited understanding of Hinduism. It attempts to fit the Hindu tradition into a religious box with more structured Abrahamic religions. But the Hindu Hindu tradition cannot be confined to, to this box or any box. There is no single founder, no single text, no single head or leader, and no single correct path. The beauty of Hinduism lies in its diversity, its breadth of philosophy, and its acceptance of multiple paths based on personalities. At its core, Hinduism is an experimental, experiential tradition. The same is said of yoga. Traditionally, Hinduism is called Santanta Dharma, or the eternal truth. 
which is so funny, by the way, because in the previous paragraph, it talks all about how there is no box, how everything, <coughs> pardon me, how everything is, you know, there's no correct path. And yet in, in this very next paragraph, it says that Hinduism is called the eternal truth. Just literally doesn't even make sense. But anyway, the quote goes on to say, it's philosophy, Hinduism that is, can be universally applied as it does not require belief in one specific form of divine or adherence to a prescribed set of rules. The ultimate goal is freedom from the cycle of birth and death, also known as moksha, which can be universally achieved regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, or gender. No one is born saved or condemned but rather earns the fruit of their actions. Work-based, right? Earns the fruit of their actions, words and thoughts, or karma, and advances spiritually by acting in accordance with dharma or righteousness. It is with this very basic understanding of Hinduism that yoga should be examined. Of course, one does not have to be Hindu to practice yoga, nor... Does practicing yoga convert one to Hinduism? But it is undeniable that the underlying philosophy of yoga stems from Hindu philosophy. Okay? So I want to add a caveat to that very quickly. Um, sort of a brief synopsis on the difference between Hinduism and Buddhism. Because that's a question that I've had and um, it's kind of important to be aware of, at least on a surface level, because you don't want to be ignorant, as I admittedly have been in the past when speaking to these ancient religions and their modern worldview. So I've definitely said before that I think that, I think I've said before that yoga comes from Buddhism, and that's not true. Buddhists practice yoga, but yoga comes from Hinduism. And so having an understanding of exactly what we're talking about does help us comprehend it. And it embodies the art of war, which is know your enemy, right? So having this like comprehensive understanding or this at least basic understanding to begin of the differences of these philosophies, these religions, these worldviews, rather than lumping them into one category, um, understanding them on this more individual basis will ultimately help us know how to refute the claims, you know, the, the opposing claims when it comes to the antithesis of Christianity. So anyway, a major difference between the two is that Buddhism rejects the concept of a soul. Buddhists believe that there is no self or soul that is reincarnated. Rather, the energy of impermanence and our consciousness is reborn and dies again in the cycle of reincarnation. So there is no soul in order to overcome the attachment and craving arising from impermanence impermanence and thus reach nirvana and achieve the succession of suffering. Okay, we, we can talk another time about how that doesn't even really make sense. Um, but that's what I just found across the board when it pertains to what Buddhism is. Um, I'm definitely already kind of turning my wheels about doing an episode on the differences between Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, you know, all the major religions. And how they are also works-based um, and just so in, like logically inconsistent. 
that there is no foundation to just really, you know, dig your heels into when it comes to making sense of anything other than Christianity. But let's keep the primary focus on Hinduism right now. Because although Buddhists practice yoga to obtain wisdom and insight, which if there's no soul, how do they even do that? But anyway, um, the yoga practice itself did derive from the religion of Hinduism, as we have seen evidenced in these, you know, these sources, the HinduAmerican.org and the Indian External Affairs, the foreign policy. So moving on. Uh, the major difference between Buddhism and Hinduism is that Hinduism believes in the concept of a soul. Okay, so Hinduism believes in the concept of a soul. We do share that in common as Christians with the Hindu religion. But the difference is that within the context of Hinduism, the soul is known as the universal soul. It's either an individual soul or a universal soul or cosmic spirit, which is that Brahman again, that Brahman God which is also known as the deity of creation, as we just learned. So in Hinduism, the soul is considered permanent, and it is believed that the same soul is reincarnated time and time again, but merely in a different form as a different living being. The cycle is said to continue until through the practice of yoga. Oh, I see. So the cycle continues um, until... Through the practice of yoga, that individual realizes that the soul is Brahman. So we just learned that Brahman is the deity of creation. So what this is saying is that you're reincarnated over and over and over again until you use the yoga practice to recognize that your soul itself is creation. Okay? So the soul is both creation and creator with, through this lens. And this realization releases the soul from the cycle of reincarnation and moksha, which again is liberation, is attained. So we are seeing a consistent pattern here across varying sources when it comes to what yoga is, what its intentional design is. And that is through the yoga practice, one is intended to achieve liberation, to break their own karmic cycle. So you can see, again, how the practice of yoga is literally ritualistically designed as means of enlightenment. And the primary goal of the creation of the yoga practice is salvation. And therefore, within the context of the Christian worldview, the result is thus inevitably blasphemous because Hinduism, which is yoga's founder, is, a, is the direct antithesis of everything that the Bible says to be true, right? It's the direct antithesis of everything that the Bible says to be true. This is just what the yoga practice inherently subscribes to just like you should be subscribed to this podcast if you aren't already you can subscribe on youtube on apple and on spotify and when you're subscribed it's the best way to make sure that you never miss an episode um, you'll get notifications when you are subscribed you will be the first to see a new episode and again if you don't follow me on instagram already 
I highly recommend you head on over there because that is where I am most. That's the best way that you can keep up with me. I am always putting out content on these types of topics, on all things surrounding New Ageism and just Christianity in general. I also speak just a lot about the state of the world, the affairs of the world, you know, stuff like Balenciaga and um, Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly's entirely blasphemous Halloween costume. So definitely keep up with me on there and don't forget to subscribe to the episode. Give, I'm sorry, the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, give it a five-star rating and written review. If you haven't already, it really helps get this into more people's ears. So now, as we can clearly see, again, Hinduism, which is yoga's founder, is the direct antithesis of everything that the Bible says to be true. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 through, verses 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So here's the thing, all right? The yoga practice is curated as means of salvation. That is the objective quality of what the yoga practice was curated to be. And therefore, inherently, intrinsically is. But we know as Christians that it is repentance and faith in Christ alone that salvation is obtained, not the yoga practice. So I say this with love, okay? If you're a Christian that practices yoga and you think it's okay, I want you to just really be honest with yourself and pray on this. Do you really believe that a practice cultivated for the purpose of achieving soulful redemption truly brings glory to God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins in order to redeem us. That is the redemption that is God-ordained, not the yoga practice. Because, look, the truth here is, if the vine is Hinduism, then the fruit is yoga. Therefore, if the vine is yoga, the fruit is idolatrous. It's idolatrous false worship that is explicitly condemned in the word of God. And to keep with that theme, given that Jesus calls himself the vine to abide in, in John 15, okay, the vine of paganism cannot produce holy fruit. There is only one vine that produces holy fruit, and his name is Jesus Christ. And apart from him, we can do nothing. And so given the design, history, purpose, and definitions surrounding the yoga practice, we can be assured that the one whose branch grows from the practice is withered and thrown away. John 15, 5 through 6, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
Okay, so the fruit produced from the vine of Christ will never be the same fruit produced from the vine of Hinduism. Because as we have seen repeatedly throughout this episode, the Hindu worldview and the Christian worldview are in direct opposition to one another. There is no cohesion between the two. That is not where Jesus Christ is. So when you abide in that vine, regardless of your own intention, you are still abiding in the vine. And so the fruit produced is not coming from the vine of Christ. I repeat, a pagan vine cannot produce holy fruits. Now, one may ask, isn't Hinduism older than Christianity? This is something I get a lot. You know, so if it's older than Christianity, then doesn't it therefore deserve more credit than what scripture says? You know, Jesus may say all these things, but if Hinduism is older, then shouldn't I recognize that as the intrinsic truth? Well, it's a good question to ask. I think it's, it's, it's valid as, you know, human beings who have inquiring minds, but there are two things wrong with this argument, okay? One, Hinduism is derived on absolutely no basis of a true beginning or end, only cycles, right? As we previously learned. So therefore, there is no concept of old or new to be recognized within this context because the bookends of time are quite literally rejected by the very worldview of Hinduism. So you can't even say, well, isn't it older? Because Hinduism doesn't, doesn't subscribe to that concept of old or new. It's just cyclical, right? And so, too, Christianity, on the other hand, begins at the recognized beginning of creation itself. Because we as Christians recognize God himself as eternal and the creator of the linear world as you and I know it. And the word Christianity itself, yes, that's new. Okay, that is a new word. But the worldview itself stands from the moment God created the heavens and the earth. Hinduism would therefore actually be a result of the pagan rebellion against God after the fall in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, thus making it newer than Christianity, right? Um, and that would be what contributes to the necessity for Christ's prophesied return. But Christianity itself does not begin with that incarnation of Christ as a person. Do you understand? Because Jesus himself is God. And God is, was, and always will be. And again, Christianity itself begins at the recognized biblical beginning of creation itself. Which we saw earlier. It's the beginning. So, moving on. Just wanted to kind of present that because that is something that I get and that's something that I hear in other podcasts too is that, you know, Christianity isn't the oldest religion. So, you know, that makes it not true for whatever reason. But um, that's not the case when you are looking through the lens of the Christian perspective. And then when you challenge that with the perspective of the other religions that don't even have a concept of linear time, the old versus new argument becomes invalid. So now I want to talk briefly about 
Okay, here we go with the pronunciations. I want to talk about um, Maste Drasna. That was pretty good. Maste Drasna and Gorakashna. So these two are Hindu gurus who allegedly founded the style of yoga that led to our modern yoga that, that we know here in America. And now I'm going to be honest, this one is hard to find information on. And I will provide the sources that I found through this guy named Alex Frank. Um, he's another former yogi turned Christian, but he is a practicing Catholic. So we do have differences in theology, but he gave a really great testimony and really provided lots of information. So I found these resources on his website pertaining to the story of Matish Matsedrasna and Gorakashna. So I might bring him onto the podcast someday, honestly. Um, anyway, just shout out to him for, uh, you know, helping me with those sources. Um, according to this story, they use their occult powers, those two gurus, to commit theft, adultery, fraud, rape, and rape by deceit, rather, corpse desecration, and the murder of... Matsajanra's son. So this started, the story goes, with the Muslim invasion of India, including Kashmir, devastating Kashmir shavanism. Remember that word from earlier that we talked about when we started discussing who Shiva is, right? I told you to keep it in the back of your mind. Here it is again. So this was in the 12th century, and the invasion, the Muslim invasion in India, caused the Kashmir Shavist gurus to sort of spread out, and one of them was Matsudrana. I'm so sorry. Um, so anyway, he used his occult powers to infiltrate a king's palace, seduce the king's wife, have his way with the king's dancing girls. And a teacher there who was the Gorakashna, um, he actually kills one of Matsudrana's sons. And get this, he skins the son as a symbol of sanctification and being washed clean of impurity. Okay? So really, you know pleasant story there. And, and this, this story, it, it's just another comparative example between, you know, the actual historical account of Christ versus a story that I really had to dig to find information on. Um, and, you know, in this case, we know that Christ came to sacrifice himself in order to raise us up, raise us up whereas these guys went to raise up their own personal power to ultimately empower themselves. Okay. Um, the disciples of yoga, which is these two, as far as, you know, the yoga that we know in, in um, America, that was westernized, the disciples of yoga sought to kill, steal, and destroy. Just like Jesus tells us the enemy does in John 10.10, right? And so that is what ultimately led to that westernization of yoga, whereas the disciples of Christ that we know, went out to preach the gospel and record the teachings of Jesus that ultimately led to the brutal murders of themselves, unfortunately. But by God's providence, their work, their, um, their stewardship of the gospel, their preaching the gospel did ultimately lead to the westernization of Christianity that we know today. Um, because without those disciples working under God's sovereignty, of course, that would not have been possible. And so you can see in this in the in this compared to in this story compared to the you know beginnings of how the gospel was brought into Western culture, 
the yoga practice and Christianity have very different fundamental beginnings. Very different. You know, while one is not only more mythological and one is more historically documented, a mood point, um, one is ultimately about self-empowerment and the other one is about the Lord and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And now I want to be clear because I know this will come up. It's not to say that there was not violence surrounding the beginnings of Christianity and that there still isn't to this day, but that is not Jesus. That was never Jesus and never will be Jesus. It was never what he preached. It is bad theology and it is false doctrine. Okay. And so thus that any violence in the name of Christianity, and I should say falsely in the name of Christianity, is not an authentic representation of God or of following Christ. Unlike this story of these two gurus, these two yogic gurus, where sin is quite literally the bedrock of those responsible for colonizing the most popular yoga used in America today, which, by the way, is Hatha Yoga, okay? So now we have to talk a little bit, a little bit about Kashmir Shaivism because that is where Hatha Yoga came from. So moving on to that subject, Kashmir Shaivism is, we can also say, the vine that produces the fruit of yoga we see today in America. And I am focusing on America mostly because it is where I live. Um, so I'm sorry if that's ignorant. I know, I know I do have some followers in other countries, but... In my research, this is kind of the avenue that I did take. Um, because honestly, I, I will say this, that, that people in other countries do actually tend to have a better understanding of these things. Whereas Americans are very self-glorified and just kind of think, well, if I want things a certain way, then that's how they're going to be regardless of anything else. Whereas other people in other countries might have a little bit well more well-rounded perspective of things. Uh, so... Anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. So this is from the Tara Yoga Center UK. And so the Tara Yoga Center, just for some context, is a registered charity dedicated to teaching authentic spirituality and bringing the principles of yoga and tantra, more on that in a moment, to as many people as possible who are open to receive it. They offer many free activities, including yoga classes, meditations, talks, and workshops. And that is from their website, the Tara Yoga Center .co.uk. So what they say about Kashmir Shavanism is that it is the complete path of initiation that provides everything needed to reach spiritual realization. At the essence of this elevated path is Shiva. There's that name again. So it offers you the fundamental keys for awakening the soul. For understanding deeper and deeper who you truly are until finally revealing the ultimate capital S, self, in the here and now. Kashmir Shaivism is considered one of the most elevated forms of yoga and tantrism as it penetrates straight to the core of spiritual knowledge and dives deep into esoteric principles from the outsets. Okay. Now, just as a little um, branch from that, the Tara Yoga Center, right? So I wanted to know what, what Tara meant. What, what does that represent? 
why is it called the Tower Yoga Center? And they are all about Kashmir Shaivism and promoting that. Um, what, what's that about, right? So here we go. Tara represents, as the site says, one of the ten Mahavidas or goddesses. So Madhavidas is also known as goddesses of the Tantric Pantheon. She, Tara, is the embodiment of knowledge, grace, and compassion. Tara is the guiding star of all spiritual seekers, helping aspirants at any moment as they navigate the ocean of illusion on the path of self-knowledge. And so the Tara Yoga Center says, our centers are dedicated to Mahavida Tara as hubs of knowledge and spiritual evolution. Um, so another defining word to take note of here is Tantra. Okay. Uh, it tie, This all ties together. Kashmir Shaivism, yoga, Tantra. They are all fruit of the same vine. Okay. Hinduism. Tantra is a Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, um, and that philosophy affirms all aspects of the material world as infused with divine feminine power. So you might have heard about or even practiced with tantric priests, tantric sex magic, tantric yoga, tantric meditation, tantric sound healing, etc., etc., etc. This whole tantric divine feminine power is where we get kundalini yoga. So that's why I really wanted to get into this because. I would be doing a disservice to all of you if I did not talk about kundalini within the context of yoga. So this is just from Wikipedia. Okay? This is just from Wikipedia, definition of kundalini yoga. It derives from kundalini, defined in tantra as energy that lies within the body, frequently at the navel or the base of the spine. In normative tantric systems, kundalini is considered to be dormant until it is activated and channeled upward through the central channel in a process of spiritual perfection. Now, I wanted to get a deeper definition. That was kind of, that's like a very baseline definition of what kundalini yoga is and where it comes from. This definition, definition literally comes from yogapractice.com. And it says, kundalini is Sanskrit and can be translated as coiled snake. Serpent in the garden much, right? Reading on. Kundalini references the ancient belief that each person holds divine energy within them at the base of their spine. We are born with this energy, and Kundalini works to uncoil the snake, which we as Christians can translate to invoking an actual demon, right? So it says... Quote, by connecting with our divine energy, we can release it through the seven chakras and out the core. I wrote corn chakra. The corn chakra. We can release it through the, the crown chakra above the head. I really like corn chakra, though. Anyway, it says the process of releasing energy from the body is meant to create a system of communication between your mind and body. This communication can relieve mental, physical, and spiritual issues. This system of awareness also connects you with your breath to facilitate being present. By establishing a new internal rhythm, you can communicate with a higher version of yourself. So, here we go. Ready? Kundalini spirit is counterfeit Holy Spirit. That's what that is. Everything I just described is counterfeit Holy Spirit. 
And that being said, I want to be clear that this is a very real thing. And it's something that I've personally experienced within for myself within the yoga practice many times, this quote release of the Kundalini spirit, the Kundalini energy. Um, and, and I loved it. it. It felt great. It really did seem like that, that enlightenment that they're talking about, you know, communicating with a higher version of yourself, as it says here. But it's the kind of thing where the whole notion of Kundalini spirit is like swallowing sewage and mistaking it for honey. Um, if you are truly a redeemed Christian, there is no doubt that you have at this point supernaturally experienced the Holy Spirit in some form or another. Um, but the thing with that is that the Holy Spirit, right, he moves based on the will of the Father, not my or your urgent desire for an immediate, convenient, technicolor dreamland, right? And so the deception of kundalini, uh, the kundalini spirit, it is great for the unbeliever particularly because it attaches itself to a genuine spiritual desire and hunger that God has given us for him, whether or not we're aware that it's for him. Um, we may confuse that yearning for God as the yearning for the higher self as that definition stated above, but it's a great deception for the unbeliever because it does attach itself to that genuine desire all of us have, as I've often called it, the God-shaped hole. Um, you know, a common argument that I do get from Christians when I speak out against the yoga practice, or even unbelievers, honestly, because I was one of these people that used to say it made me feel connected to God, whatever their perspective or understanding of God may be, even if it is just the higher self, right? So you may say that you feel the Holy Spirit even within the practice. If you are a Christian, you might have expressed that to me, or you might genuinely feel that within your heart. But what does the scripture say about hearts? It says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, not just sick, but desperately sick. And who can understand it, right? So following that point, think about how many yoga flows are specifically curated to stir up the base of the spine. How many vinyasas that the, the yoga teacher takes you through intentionally for the spine. Whether or not it is defined as or taught as kundalini yoga, there's always that focus of the energy of the base of the spine. But that's intentional, okay? And what you feel in the yoga practice is not the Holy Spirit. Because that's not, how the, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is not something that we can conjure up within ourselves and snap our fingers like it's, a, like it's a light switch and just say, Holy Spirit, do it. Give me this technicolor dreamland experience. No, the Holy Spirit works on God's time by God's will. And the disciple of Christ... The true disciple of Christ listens closely to the shepherd's voice and is not led away by false wonders. Okay, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, Jesus. His voice, Jesus' voice is in his word. God's voice is in his word and the personal inklings from him will never contradict his word as everything that we just read, the yoga practice quite literally does. 
So this ploy of Satan with the Kundalini spirit curated within the yoga practice is so crafty because it is an assault on our very God-given desire to experience the spiritual. God gives us this yearning. He gives us these yearnings because we are created for relational intimacy and supernatural experiences with God, yes. But too often, we simply won't invest the time the fervent Bible study, and the prayer to really witness that and allow it to happen in God's timing, not ours. The timing is in God's hands, not our demand. Then here comes a false prophet, the kundalini spirit, to give it to us right now instead. But the thing is, when, when we are craving that we and, and demanding it, if we think that whether or not we're trying to conjure the kundalini spirit in the context of a yoga practice, or we are kind of calling on the Holy Spirit to have us experience something supernatural on our demand, right? We kind of function more like a spiritual addict than a disciple of Christ in this case. And that's just something, again, take inventory on. Is this behavior really bringing glory to God? No judgment. I'm not perfect. Uh, by no means am I perfect. You know, we all fall short. Gospel tells us that. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can edify each other. And so I just wanted to provide that, um, that perspective, that understanding, that we function more like a spiritual addict than a disciple of Christ. And so for someone to say, I feel God in the yoga practice. It makes me feel God. It brings me to God. Does that really align with what scripture says? Is it really bringing glory to God to abide in the vine of Hinduism? That can never produce the fruit of Christ. And so if it can never produce the fruit of Christ, then you can almost guarantee that that's not the Holy Spirit. But it is the Kundalini Spirit, which is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. Because that's what Satan does. You know, he's crafty, but he's not creative. So he has counterfeits. Things that can taste, smell, look like the real thing. But ultimately, it's like I said, it's, it's drinking sewage and mistaking it for honey. This is one of those examples. And all of that provided, this just in lies another layer to the yoga practice that just totally flies in the face of God's biblical order. And you can clearly see, the more that we discuss this, that there's this domino effect here. And I noticed that in my research too, right? That, okay, yoga points to little g-gods, points to Hinduism, points to Kashmir shamanism, points to Tantra, points back to yoga. But you know what absolutely none of it points to is Jesus Christ. So that being said... To that point, the definition of yoga, okay, we have a lot of the history now. Let's get into the definitions of yoga. The definition of yoga is to yoke in Sanskrit, which you can find on almost any yoga source online. It is also something that I was personally taught in my yoga teacher training. Um, to yoke, which means to, which um, connotes a spiritual unity rooted in a kind of servitude. And of course, in Matthew eleven thirty, 30, Jesus tells us to bear his yoke, right? 
Again, we have counterfeits here. Um, now we can ask ourselves, okay, well, what kind of yoke do we bear in the yoga practice? Or what kind of servitude does yoga bind its practitioners to? And I do think we explained a lot of that already, but let's continue to explore the issue. We can ask Judith Laster, and she is one of the most prominent yoga teachers. She has a PhD in physical therapy, and she's been teaching yoga since 1971. She trains students and teachers throughout the United States as well as abroad, is one of the founders of Yoga Journal, which is a popular magazine and website, and she is the president of the California Yoga Teachers Association. And this is all per yogainternational.com. So Judith describes yoga as the true essence of the practice being enlightenment to, quote, experience reality not as our various parts, but as one unified being, right? Well, that's not biblical, but that's what she says the yoga practice is. That's what she says it is. And this is according to all of the history that we just went through. This isn't just her saying it, like how someone can just come out and say, well, I do Christian yoga. This isn't her just saying it. This is her saying it based on the history and all the definitive context that we just went through for quite some time, right? Next, we have An Anusha Wajakumar, and she's another prominent yoga teacher and writer. She is a sought-after motivational speaker, um, and this is all per Chopra.com, and this is her bio. So she is a sought-after motivational speaker around the world on the science and mindfulness and meditation and the intersection of wellness and social justice. She has delivered keynotes for health and wellness conferences, universities, Fortune 500 companies, and corporate events across North America and the UK. Anusha has over 15 years of international senior management experience working for Fortune 50, 100, and 500 global corporations, social justice nonprofit organizations, and private companies in three continents. She holds a BA, MA, Diploma in Mentoring, Certified Professional Life Coach Qualification, Yoga Teacher, E-R-Y-T, and is a meditation practitioner. So I just want to give some credentials. That's my only point in mentioning all of that. Um, Chopra.com, where I found this information, is a website that offers certifications, classes, journals, and that's all within like an Ayurvedic umbrella. Um, anyway, so she says that yoga, the ultimate goal of yoga is samadhi, or samadhi, yes, which means final union with God and divine consciousness. Yoga is much more than physical postures. So from those two women, I, I, got, the, I got both of these uh, quotes from the same yoga journal source. They both say that yoga is much more than physical postures. And it's, again, based on all the history. It's based on all the definitive context. So the bottom line here is that you cannot separate the spiritual components of this practice. You cannot separate the spiritual components of the yoga practice because the very curation is rooted in the spiritual. The definitions, history, and experts within the field all confirm that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you cannot separate the spiritual components of the yoga practice because its very curation is rooted in the spiritual. It's worth repeating. Contrary to popular belief, this is not just innocuous stretching. Yoga is not just innocuous stretching. 
And to that point, someone may be inclined to say, but it does have beneficial components. And yeah, okay, like it's true. I'm not denying that. But, you know, like people would not be drawn to the yoga practice if it didn't have some sort of physical benefit. Um, Like I said in the very beginning of this episode, beneficial does not mean good. And I want you to think as a really good example for this about alcohol, right? Alcohol is beneficial in so much that it may help you loosen up within a social setting, help you commune with your friends a little easier, but is it good for you just because it's beneficial to your social anxiety? By no means. And especially within repeated use, which I think we can all agree on that, right? Um, Moving on. Skeptical claims that yoga is just exercise, especially because of how commercial it is. Uh, Look, mind the mindfulness, for lack of a better word, the mindfulness industry. It's a $1.1 billion industry. Think Costa Rica, for instance, for retreats and, you know, the overall cost of yoga teacher training. I paid three grand to become a yoga teacher, just for the record. Um, Whereas coming to Christ is free, by the way. The only thing that Christianity really costs you is your pride. But here's the thing, right? When, When McDonald's says that they have the tastiest, healthiest hamburgers or that they're selling, they have a really, really healthy option now. You know, something that's really good for your cholesterol, X, Y, Z. Do you take that at face value? Hopefully not. Um, But of course they're going to make that pitch. Why? Because they are trying to sell you something. So that's why there's a lot of claim that yoga is just a really great physical exercise. The secular world is trying to sell you on stuff like yoga as means to physical wellness because the prince of the secular world is Satan. Per 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The more that they can sell you on all of this mindfulness, new age, pagan jargon, the more that you will be blind to what is true because you're always being sold a lie. And it's just like that example. McDonald's comes out with a new heart-healthy cheeseburger. And we actually see that example on on oils, right? On the front of canola oil, it says heart-healthy. That's not true. But they're trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you something by claiming it is one thing when the truth is it is something entirely different. And you could say that partaking in the yoga practice is indeed the equivalent, the spiritual equivalent to chugging a jug of canola oil. (laughs) Because it says heart healthy on the front of it. Yoga is not a physical practice with spiritual benefits. It is a spiritual practice with physical benefits, first and foremost. And now, speaking of the physical aspects, let's talk a bit about some of the poses themselves and what they mean, because there is a lot of confusion, like I mentioned at the very beginning, surrounding this topic. 
more than most things when it comes to yoga. Um, and so I want to touch on the meaning behind the poses, also known as asanas in Sanskrit, uh, because it does tie into everything else I just discussed as it relates to Hinduism and pagan idolatry. Okay. The specific poses that I'm going to discuss here, you can find in the yoga highlight tab on my Instagram page for accompanying visuals. Let's start with the warrior sequence, okay? So we have warrior one, two, and three. To make a long story short, the history of the warrior poses. Um, Lord Shiva, there's that name again, and Sati were married against her father's wishes. And so naturally her father kills her. You know, what else are you going to do? When Shiva heard about the death of Sati, he is so enraged that he tears his own hair out. And from his hair comes the fiercest of warriors, Virabhadra. I cannot pronounce these words. Vira Bhadra. There we go. Vira Bhadra, who had a thousand arms, three fiery eyes, and a body as dark as storm clouds. He wore a garland of skulls and carried many terrifying weapons. Sounds like a really nice guy. And this is where Sanskrit's name for the warrior sequence comes from, which is Vira Bhadra So Shiva commands... Virabhadra to go behead Sati's father and all his guests and the three-part warrior sequence Virabhadra is what it's called is designed as the reenactment of this murder scene of you know from a from a from a god from a pagan god that we know already from the beginning and all of the stuff we got into before is the god of destruction right so this is not so much innocuous stretching after all Next, we'll talk about Varivasana, which is known, translated in our language as the formidable pose. And Varivara is one of the eight aspects of the god Shiva. So enough said there. Trivikramasana, Trivikramasana, aka the standing splits, comes from Trivikrama, which is a deity in Hindu mythology. Asta Astavakrasana, or eight-angle pose, is dedicated to the sage Astavakra. And if you remember way earlier, we talked about all the seven sages, right? And the seven sages were the um, mind born of Brahman, the creation god. So it just all ties into each other. Nadatarajasana, popularly known as dancer pose, is the cosmic dancing form of Shiva, also representing the cyclical nature of life that we know to be reincarnation within the context of Hinduism. Then there's Uka, Utkata Kanasana, Utkata Kanasana, which is what they call goddess pose in the yoga practice. And that is an homage to the goddess Kali. So the goddess Kali is that, that really sweet looking one with a necklace of severed heads, a bloody sword in her hand, and tons of arms and tons of legs that trample the carcasses of the men beneath her. She represents divine femininity. And if you think about it, the definition of her sounds a lot like those raging feminists that just hate the patriarchy and hate men. So no coincidence there. Anyway, I would like to actually add something I found in my research regarding the goddess Kali that sort of brings us back to the tantric flair of Hinduism as well. 
Um, there's this horrific story, and again, I'll provide that link in the show notes, of a child sacrifice that happened quite recently in India. Um, this woman in India, she sought out a tantric priest who told her that she had to sacrifice a child in the village so that Kali would stop giving her terrifying nightmares. So she and her sons, therefore, kidnapped a three-year-old, cut off his ears, nose, and hands before the image of Kali. And as I dug into that, I found that these child sacrifices are actually common in India, and they're all centralized from tantric teachings, which all ultimately grew out of Hinduism. And yes, tantric yoga is indeed a branch of yoga, where the primary focus is to cultivate and build up kundalini energy. And so I just felt like that was a good, not, not by any means a pleasant story, may God bless that child that they sacrificed and sure that child is in the arms of the creator now but you know this just goes to show the nature of all of these things that vine and the fruits that I mentioned before and like I said before there are instances where men and women have badly misrepresented Christianity and the name of our God by doing really awful things falsely in his name. But that's the thing. It is a misrepresentation. It's a misrepresentation. It does not align with any scripture or any teachings of Christ. This story, however, is not a misrepresentation of the goddess Kali. This is literally the death and destruction that she accurately represents and embodies in, her very, in, in the very image of her. And the very idol of her. And she is who you honor every time you're in a yoga class and the instructor invites you to that ever-empowering goddess pose. Okay? You just can't escape it. And my point of sharing that is that all of these things are ultimately what do surround the truth of the yoga practice and Hinduism and what it's all curated for. The love and light stuff is a deception that even the most well-intentioned, seemingly good-hearted people fall for. I'm not here to judge anyone's hearts, okay? I'm just here to call a spade a spade. This stuff is a gimmick. And there's a reason why the mindfulness industry, as we'll call it, is a $1.1 billion industry. Yoga is the shiny apple evade in the garden. Okay? So back to the poses um, that I just briefly took us through. Something that I want to draw your attention to with these asanas in particular is that none of them are natural looking or natural feeling in the body. And that's the first way that I want to make the distinction between the stretching and the yoga practice. Um, those poses, you know, and many of the poses are not positions that you just find yourself craving naturally. Like if you're watching me, just like reaching my arms up, that's not anything like the dancer pose like that's you know that's something your body just kind of craves naturally and kind of goes into and you're not paying homage to any hindu god by doing that but that is a that is a good way to kind of make the distinction between the two you know these poses a lot of them are seriously intentionally meant to contort your body within the series of vinyasa flows Vinyasa, by the way, it just simply means the flowing sequence of the poses, of the asanas, vinyasa. So vinyasa is the yoga flow itself. 
And the poses, the asanas, intentionally contort your body within the series of vinyasa flows for a specific purpose. And yes, there are what we would consider normal stretches accompanied within the vinyasa, but within the actual context of the yoga practice, it is all used within the vinyasa as an esoteric modality. Those normal stretches within the vinyasa, within the context of yoga, are all used as an esoteric modality, which makes it very different from a simply stretch, from a simple stretch, even if your intention is to simply stretch within the yoga practice. You are doing much more than simply stretching within the context of yoga, whether or not you're aware of it. More on that in a moment. Just want to use a little bit of an example, right? The forward fold. It's, it's very natural, reaching down to touch your toes. You can stretch out your hamstrings that way, let the blood flow to your head. Just kind of take a moment to just decompress, right? I actually, I like to do that a lot, actually. But within the context of the yoga practice, the forward fold is actually a part of a vinyasa sequence called the sun salutation. And the sun salutation is, I believe, a 12-part vinyasa that is literally a salute to the Hindu god of sun, known as Sura. So the forward fold, although it is a natural expression within the context, uses an asana within the vinyasa flow of a sun salutation in the yoga practice, becomes pagan worship. It is not just stretching. But waking up in the morning, reaching down into a forward fold, that's just stretching. So I hope that helps a bit. Um, to that point, I want to be clear that demons, this is not to say that demons, pagan deities, which are demons, have any monopoly over the body or on certain body postures of their own. Okay. It is to say, however, that the yoga practice in and of itself has you participating in Hindu rituals via the body postures. And there's now no way of escaping that reality. So, no, demons don't have monopoly necessarily over body postures, but in the context of the yoga practice itself, you are participating in Hindu rituals using the body postures that do give monopoly to the deities. That the asanas and vinyasas are curated to invoke, to honor. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 6.12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So as I said before per scripture, we are engaged in a spiritual war, meaning that there is more than meets the eye. And in this world where 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and blinds our minds like we saw in a previous verse from Corinthians and even masquerades as an angel of light per 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. We have to understand that there is a susceptibility when it comes to the influence of our unconscious mind, which is why that same verse in 1 Peter, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, also calls us to be vigilant and awake. And so, you know, lots of influences 
with the unconscious here. And um, a lot of other things in life influence the unconscious as well. It's not just yoga. You know, as a more benign example, when we fall in love, for instance, that affects our unconscious in ways that we do not subjectively intend, but it is still objectively the case. So the point here being is that the second you intend to participate in the yoga practice, then the bodily postures can become gateways regardless of your subjective intent because there is an objective quality to our actions that goes beyond the subjective intents. So listen, I'm not Catholic, but I like this example because it's really easy to wrap your head around. Okay, for a Christian to practice yoga is like a practicing Hindu coming to pray the rosary or take the Eucharist because they saw on a billboard that it's good for your heart health or something, that it's, that it's good for mindfulness. It's a meditation exercise, right? Regardless of their subjective intent, there is an objective implication there in receiving the Eucharist, for example, that goes much deeper. And now look, please don't come at me telling me that Catholicism is pagan. Like I said, I'm not a practicing Catholic. I'm just using this as a tangible example that hopefully makes sense for you to further understand why a Christian just simply has no business doing yoga. Um, as we start to wrap up here, I want to kind of get into what God's word says about idolatry, about paganism, and about the body. And so... There's a common rebuttal that I get quite often regarding this topic, which is that the Bible doesn't say the exact words. You know, there's no like, there's no Ephesians 1 verse 12 that says don't do yoga. I get that a lot. Um, okay, so the thing with that is that it also doesn't say explicitly don't shoot heroin, right? Um, this this whole this whole argument to kind of split hairs when it comes to gospel is actually a way that we do deploy a religious spirit that I mentioned way earlier in the show that I was accused of. Um, we deploy a religious spirit when it comes to splitting hairs of gospel rather than a servant spirit of Christ. Even though, you know, even though there isn't an explicit passage that says don't shoot heroin, we can use discernment of the Holy Spirit provided what God's word does say to infer that it is not something a disciple of Christ should be participating in. You know, there are things that we should and should not do based on what God's word says. Just like how God's word doesn't explicitly say donate to Angela's Heaven and Healing podcast, it would be really appreciated if you could follow the link in the show notes, follow the link below to donate to Heaven and Healing podcast. I'm just going to take a moment to be really, really vulnerable right now, guys. Look, I just moved to Tennessee. I'm 900 miles away from everything that I've known. It took me over a month and a half to find a really rock solid job. And I'll be making real money again toward the end of this month. And if you're watching in real time, it's December 2022. Um, but things have been really hard. And there are things um, for this podcast financially that I really, really need to make the production better. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you know, I, I'm looking around me right now and literally 
half, like 75% of the soundproof things that I put up all fell down. And I don't know what to do about that. This room is really big. The ceilings are really high. This is the only place in the house where I can have a studio. I don't know how to fix the sound problem, but it's going it, to, I need money for it, obviously. And um, I need new lights. I need a secondary camera. I need new memory cards. So by no means am I saying it's your responsibility to pat my back financially, but I know that a lot of you really like this podcast. A lot of you come to me often asking for me to talk about specific topics and things like that. And I do put a lot of time and energy into this. I do treat it as a job. It is, it is one of my, it, it is with a servant heart that I do this, right? But it is work. And this episode alone was over 60 hours of research. And so just if you were able to, if you are able to donate anything at all to the Heaven and Healing Podcast Ministry, a little really does go a long, long way in helping with the overall production and quality um, with the maintenance of the episodes. And the truth of the matter is I would be able to have things out a little more frequently if I could rely more on the finances accumulated from heaven and healing rather than from my, you know, serving job. So I just want to put that out there that if you're able to donate, that would be wonderful. If not, I ask every episode, please, please pray for me. Please pray for the podcast. Um, please pray that God will provide all that he can and will keep his promises as he says in his word. So Speaking of what he says in his word, uh, given the historical, definitive, and spiritual context of yoga, let's take all of that stuff that we just talked about and focus on what scripture does say about pagan worship, following Christ, and, you know, the body, the physical body, bearing all of that other stuff in mind, all of that other stuff in mind, the definitive, the history spiritualism, all of it. Um, so we have here, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Okay, this is how seriously God takes our bodies. We ourselves are his temple where the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and he would literally rather destroy one who corrupts the temple than have the temple be corrupted at all, okay? Then we have Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, where it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is such important scripture when it comes to those of us who feel like we don't want to give up the yoga practice for one reason or another. And again, it goes back to that idea of being a spiritual addict rather than a disciple of Christ, because we are called to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And this goes along with what Jesus says too about picking up our cross and following him in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Timothy 4, 8 says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, 
holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So this one is for the folks who say, but it helps me stay fit, right? Okay, being godly is more important than means to fitness. And besides, there are plenty of other ways to stretch, to exercise, and work toward physical wellness, but more on that in a moment, okay? Following with the scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Just like we talked about earlier, does it really bring glory to God to partake in a practice that is designed for Hindu worship and namely Hindu means of salvation that just totally flies in the face of everything the gospel says and really flies in the face of the work Jesus did on the cross. Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And this is my absolute favorite one for the topic of yoga. One of my favorite verses in general, really. It's a really great reminder for lots of things. Um, but, you know, we are not our own. Guys, we are not our own. We were bought with a price the most precious loving sacrifice ever made in the history of mankind is the work that Christ did for us on that cross. And even though we were, we will always fall short, the least we can do is honor God with our bodies. Okay. And walking away from the yoga practice is simple enough, especially when one, there are many other modalities of physical exercise. And two, the greatest kind of spirituality you're going to get is found in the pages of the Bible and in private prayer with the Lord as you watch and allow his supernatural plan for your life to unfold, just like we talked about with the counterfeit kundalini spirit. It's in his time, not yours. And that makes it all the more rich and beautiful because you know that his plans are perfect. His timing is perfect. He's never late. And if it, even if it's not on our demand, which it most often is not, it's perfect because it's coming from God. So all that being said, here we are to review um, scripture regarding idolatry, pagan worship, etc. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. So now here is that instance where the word yoga is not explicitly stated in that passage. But given all that we do know about the practice, we can use the historical definitive definitive and his, I'm sorry, the historical, the definitive, and the spiritual knowledge relating to the yoga practice, coupled with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, with what it says here in Deuteronomy 18, to recognize that yoga is, in fact, a physical divination practice, and thus an abomination to the Lord. Okay? It's not about what Scripture doesn't say. It's about what Scripture does say. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithful, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So idolaters is explicitly stated there, entering a practice, right? Entering a practice where the vinyasas and asanas are curated to literally pay homage to Hindu gods is as idolatrous as it gets. Again, regardless of your subjective intent, there is an objective quality that you cannot bypass here just because you want to. If it were that simple, the gospel wouldn't even be necessary, right? And then we have 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is, this is a good one, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So the takeaway here is that partial obedience is still disobedience. And while we will never be perfect, nor does the Lord expect out of us, for the record, um, we can be sincere, okay? Admitting that yoga is self-serving, you know, the, the love of yoga is self-serving rather than God-serving, given everything we just discussed. And foregoing that practice is indeed a sincere act of obedience, even if you still have other areas to grow, that God will help you figure out along your walk with him. Okay? And again, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I have no authority over you. I am no authority over you. I am not perfect. I am not righteous. I am a sinner. I am a wretch that by the grace of God, he chose to snatch from the darkness and bring into the light. And I am just forever grateful for that. And it is because of that gratitude that I have such a servant heart for my king. And I just want people to know, I want people to know that divination hurts his heart and the yoga practices physical divination. It hurts his heart. And I don't think, if you're listening to this, especially if you made it this far, I don't think you want to hurt God's heart. So I'm not judging you. Please understand that. I've been accused of it so many times. I'm not judging anybody. I'm not doubting your love for God. I'm just affirming that, like me, you want to self-serve because you're wired that way because of the curse in the Garden of Eden. You want to self-serve. You want to put yourself first. You rebel against God by nature, but... When we go back to what scripture says over and over and over, when we are in fervent Bible study, we are in prayer, that Holy Spirit does come, not by our demand, as we've been saying, but by the will of God. And he changes our hearts and he changes our desires and he helps us. He helps us make our will his will. And so all I want to do here is just, as your sister in Christ, be there to hold your hand as I hope that you would hold mine. That's all this is. Second Timothy 4, 3, 3, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
That brings me back to mindfulness. I use air quotes if you're not watching. Being a $1.1 billion industry. Because it's all false doctrines, counterfeit gospel, and pretend salvation that preys on itching ears. That's why. Finally, part of De this is just part of Deuteronomy 12, um, 1 through 32. It says, these are, these are the statutes and rules. Let me begin again. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and jass in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down these carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So I honestly encourage you to just dig into Deuteronomy yourself to let God refresh you and show you for himself exactly how he feels about this kind of thing, exactly how he feels about the yoga practice, especially when we say that we are using the yoga practice to worship God. It says here, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And he is directly speaking to paganism and idolatry within this context here. Um, so like God doesn't play when it comes to paganism. He really doesn't. Um, now, given all that was discussed in this episode, okay, coupled with scripture, as a Christian, do you really still believe that it brings glory to God in any way to engage in the yoga practice? Do you really believe that it's beneficial to eat the fruit of a pagan branch rather than abide in the vine of Christ alone? Do you really believe God does not consider something to be pagan worship that was quite literally cultivated in paganism for the purpose of paganism in pursuit of paganistic spirituality and salvation. By definition, by history, by spiritual connotation, yoga is pagan. Regardless of your subjective intent, there is an objective quality there. All movement all movement is not holy movement just because you want it to be, just because you intend it to be. Similarly to how all sex is not holy sex. And I use that as an example because sex is something else that we use our body for, obviously. And it is another one of those things where you cannot separate the spiritual connotation from the physical act. So I'm going to repeat that again. All movement is not holy movement just as all sex is not holy sex. Sex is something that we use for our body just as movement is. And sex is one of those things where you cannot separate the spiritual connotation from the physical act, just like yoga. So God obviously condemns any sex outside of the gorgeous confines of marriage. But sex in and of itself, you know, even separate from God's world, God's word is a pleasurable physical experience, just like yoga is. Sex is beneficial to the body, just like yoga is. With sex, it's, you know, the endorphins, hormones, even your gut health, sex improves. Sex is something that 
can also make you feel like you have achieved some sort of spiritual nirvana within the sexual act. Because the truth is, as we know from God's word, that sex is two people becoming one flesh. And whether or not you believe that, this is another good example of whatever your subjective intent is, it doesn't matter because there's an objective quality to it, right? Whether or not you believe that sex makes two people one flesh, it does. And that is why sex is, is, is such an incredibly transcendent experience. Sex binds you in one flesh. In God's eyes, you are one flesh when you engage in sex with another person. Even if your intention is to just go out and get laid one night, that doesn't matter. Because the objective quality to your subjective intent overrules whatever it is you have set out to do when you go to the bar to find a hookup. You are spiritually binding yourself to someone in the image of God. And even if you have sex with someone, even if it's a partner that you love. Look, I've had this experience too because before I was saved, I was having premarital sex and I thought... I thought that it was okay because I was in a monogamous relationship. We were faithful to one another only. We've loved each other a very long time. And there were times when we would have sex where it was extremely transcendent to the point where I would cry. I would cry because there's something there that is inexplicably spiritual. And I didn't understand it then because I wasn't a believer, but I understand it now. But even still, even as beautiful as I thought that was, even as, as pure and as holy even as I used to think my premarital sex was, that doesn't change the objective fact that God condemns sex outside of marriage. And the same here is true for the yoga practice. I repeat, just as all sex is not holy sex, not all movement is holy movement. Even if it feels pleasurable, even if it is physically beneficial. To reiterate a point made earlier, beneficial and good are mutually exclusive. They are not one in the same. Just because something is beneficial, just because something feels pleasurable, just because something feels transcendent does not make it good or holy, or pleasing in the sight of God. So premarital sex and the yoga practice are actually very quite similar within this analogy because both are used with the physical body. Both do have, in fact, incredibly beneficial aspects to the physical body, and both are an act of the physical that really eludes to something spiritual. There is an objective spiritual quality to sex and to the yoga practice that regardless of your subjective intent is still there. All movement is not holy movement just as all sex is not holy sex because ultimately it comes down to what God says about it. And what God says about it, just like we read from all those examples of scripture, is that Divination is an abomination. Yoga is a physical divination practice. You use your body as a modality of divination, whether or not you are conscious to it.
What else does scripture say? Jesus says himself that he is the true vine. He is the vine that we should abide in to produce holy fruit. When we abide in a vine of Hinduism, which is what yoga is, the fruit is ultimately not holy. A pagan vine cannot produce holy fruit, no matter how much we want it to. An apple tree will never produce oranges because it is an apple tree. The same is true for the yoga practice. The vine of the yoga practice can never produce holy fruit because the vine of the yoga practice is in within the root of paganism. So the fruit that grows from it is never going to be the holy fruit that Jesus Christ himself alone offers from faith in him and repentance of our sin, confessing that Jesus is Lord. The yoga practice is designed, curated for spiritual nirvana. That is the intention of the vinyasas and the asanas coupled with actual homage to the Hindu deities. But we know from scripture that salvation and freedom lies in Christ alone. And again, regardless of that's our intent, well, I'm not practicing yoga to achieve some sort of spiritual nirvana. Well, that's what the vine of yoga is. And so that's the fruit being produced. Something that is inherently idolatrous and blasphemous and goes against what the word of God says. To reiterate again, regardless of your subjective intent, there is an objective quality to all things that we do. So what can I do instead, you may ask? If I can't practice yoga, then what can I do? Can I just stretch? Like, can I do a lunge? Can I do a wide-legged forward fold, do a seated twist, or reach my arms above my head without invoking pagan deities? Angela, can I do anything at all? Can I move my body? Can I even kick out my leg? Can I even, right now as I'm sitting in this chair, stretch out my legs and feel the stretch in the backs of my hamstrings that I overworked at the gym yesterday? Yes, absolutely. Something I feel that is worth mentioning again is that demons do not have monopoly over the body or of certain body postures on their own, okay? The point of this episode is to not give Satan more credit than he is due. I have an entire episode on that, not giving Satan more credit than he is due. You know how we shouldn't uh, overestimate the devil. But the thing is, I also say in that episode, we shouldn't underestimate him either. That's why there is gospel on these topics. That's why there are so many warnings within the gospel, so the objective reality, again, is that the yoga practice in and of itself has you participating in Hindu rituals via body postures. So demons do not have monopoly over body postures on their own, but the objective reality is that the yoga practice in and of itself has you participating in Hindu rituals via the body postures. And there's absolutely no way of escaping that regardless of your subjective intent. So the biggest issue here is just yoga, right? Practicing yoga, whether it be at a class or at home, that is what you should be avoiding as a Christian that wants to honor God, as I'm sure you do. And to keep your temple as clean as you can, right? To be obedient to the Lord your God who sent his only begotten son. But we should and we can engage in exercise. We should do well in maintaining our physical health because, because these bodies are our temple, right? So I don't want you to be afraid of stretching. I have to admit, it took me about seven months 
post salvation to stretch again because I was scared because I didn't know the difference. And that's why I wanted to get this episode out so that people could really understand the difference. It is the context of the yoga practice. It is intentionally seeking out a yoga practice, a yoga class, a yoga video on YouTube, yoga alone within the confines of your own four walls with nothing but just you and your mat. Seeking that out is the problem. It's not stretching itself. Okay. So just, just the same way, you know, like if, if you want to pray, if you want to pray within the context of just you and God, that's great. If you pray and you have tarot cards around, you're entering into something completely different than just normal prayer. Do you see what I'm saying? There is a difference there. Something a lot of people ask me is about Pilates. And honestly, I've had a lot of mixed research on it, but unfortunately it does seem that there is a consensus that Pilates is borrowed from yoga. Um, but I will say that that is heavily debated. I want to cite a source here. Um, I will leave this in the show notes again. So it says, Joseph Pilates' worldview, borrowed from Eastern spirituality, makes his technique of particular concern to those calling themselves Christians, as it has the potential of introducing practitioners to ideals of holism, holistic thought, wholeness, oneness, all is one, etc., and lead them into unwittingly becoming sympathetic towards Eastern philosophy. Yoga and other eclectic ideologies that may trip up naive Christians who are not well grounded in sound doctrine. While many Pilates teachers may argue that they don't teach Eastern spirituality, just as many yoga teachers argue, the basic premise of both body wellness programs are a part of Eastern philosophy. Any program entwining the human mind and spirit and the body, or mental slash spiritual and physical health claiming that they are interrelated, should raise a red warning flag. The concept of body, mind, and spirit is integral to, quote, holistic ideology and not based in authentic science. That is true. Uh, the likes carry dangers of confusion and blur, blurs biblical truth. So I do agree with that um, in, in many ways. I, I, I do want to add, though, but that... Uh, I found an ample amount of research actually just pointing to the life of the history of and the philosophies of Joseph Pilates. And while they are not by any means overtly Christian, I personally did not see anything necessarily pointing him to the beliefs of entwining the mind, body, spirit, as this uh, former source has, has accused him of, uh, or as I should say claimed is a more gentler word, but from what I did found, he was like involved in the military. He was really well educated on fitness. He was a gymnast and he helped the guys in the military work out regularly. He developed Pilates from gymnastics, not from yoga. Um, I'll leave that source. It's, it's really lengthy um, in the show notes as well. All the sources will be there for you. It just kind of goes into his life as well as the life of his parents who also do not seem to be tied to anything evil. Um, I believe his mom was a it was a neuropath, so she just was into like medicines that didn't involve pharmaceutical drugs. And overall, I was getting that like Joseph Pilates' goal was core work and strengthening the physical body. But I admittedly did not do as much of a deep dive into Pilates as I did yoga. Again, this was like 60 hours of research and Maybe that will be a future episode if this topic is really pressing. If you know anyone that I should speak with or interview on the subject of Pilates, please send them my way in an Instagram DM. But in the meantime, I would recommend that you do your own research on this topic uh, and use the discernment of the Holy Spirit, like we talked about, use scripture when it comes to the Pilates topic. Okay, I, 
I did the research on yoga on your behalf, so now you can take it from here with the Pilates, okay? I do think um, that maybe, perhaps, because it is outside the context of the yoga practice, as I said before, it's the context of the yoga practice, entering in the yoga practice, which was curated for something specific. And because demons don't have monopoly over body position, over body postures in and of themselves, that perhaps Pilates is okay um, because the curation of the two practices are very, very different. The history is very different. The definitions are very different. So even if he took aspects of yoga, that those were just strictly the movements, like the movements themselves, the postures themselves, which like I said, and will reiterate time and time again, because I don't want you to be afraid of moving your body, that demons don't have monopoly over body postures. They have monopoly over body postures that were curated within the context of the yoga practice because the yoga practice itself was curated for Hindu purposes that are innately spiritual, not physical. So... Yeah, um, again, I'll just, the Pilates thing, I'll leave that to you for now. My personal recommendation, I've never done Pilates. I don't know what it's like. Um, I guess people really enjoy it, but I've had, I've done bar before. And my overall understanding of bar is that it derives from ballet. There may be similar yogic movements, but to reiterate for like the sixth time, you know, some of these are just like very normal postures that outside of the context of yoga practice are just normal body postures. Um, so it's just really, you know, again, it, it's, it's because of the curation, the history, spirituality, and definitions surrounding the yoga practice, that's when your body becomes like a demonic playground, okay? And I just really pray that I made that point clear enough for you guys. Some of my personal favorite modalities of exercise are, I, I like to, I love weightlifting, um, and I, and I do enjoy cardio, which I know is like a weird thing to say, but I do like it. It's so good. I mean, cardio is for cardiovascular health. It's just so good for you, you know, walking on an incline, going on hikes, running, all of the cardio things, jump rope, dancing. Um, and that being said, you know, I do lift and stretching is an important component of lifting if you don't want to get injured and if you want to really ensure optimal utilization of your muscles and joints. So I definitely don't recommend avoiding stretching altogether. Like I, I don't recommend that. Something else I used to really enjoy is spin class. If you've never done that before, it's a really fun way to get cardio in. Um, you know, a lot of the time they're playing like worldly secular music and like saying things like you have all this power you need inside of you kind of thing. But I mean, use your discernment, right? And, and if someone gets a little too new agey or, or secular jargon, go, go see another instructor. But there are so many ways to exercise. You might find a sport that you really enjoy, but even a home workout. Um, oh, I did want to mention that. You know, some people might say, well, I don't have money for a gym membership kind of thing. Um, maybe, you, maybe you genuinely do enjoy using your body. Like as like in yoga, how it's all your own body weight, right? So something that I got really into in quarantine when I couldn't leave, I ordered these off Amazon, um, TRX. So these, there are these ropes that you attach to like a door frame. I just hit myself in the head that you attach to a door frame 
and you use your body weight for them. Like you, you hold on to them. You can do like rows with them, one arm, two arm. You can do lots of things, lots of different ways. Hold them in all sorts of different ways. Um, you can put your feet in them, so you can put your arms on the ground and do push-ups that way. And you can do core work that way by like doing mountain climbers. Um, you can do squats with them. They are so versatile and they were a really, really great way to just use your body weight as your modality of exercise. Maybe if you can't afford a gym membership, but you can use like 60 bucks for this one time just to get the TRX ropes. Also resistance bands are really good. You can find those on Amazon. Um, just as like a more of a body weight thing as opposed to, uh, you know, a barbell at the gym. So there's so many different options. And if you do need more help, feel free to message me on Instagram. I try and respond to messages as much as I can. I get so many now, which is crazy. Thank you so much for all your support. Um, but I do really try to respond when my time allows me to. But anyway, this episode was long enough. All in all, as a Christian, I just really recommend you don't do yoga. Hours later, that's really just the point of it all. I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you like I'm some sort of authority that you can or can't do something, but the history, the spiritualism, the definitions all speak for themselves. Scripture speaks for itself. I know you probably have really good intentions. I know you probably do even have a heart for God and that you don't intend to sin against him when you practice yoga, but I also know what the Bible says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, about leaning not on our own understanding and it is because of what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah the prophet says, that our hearts are desperately sick, and who can know them? To conclude, remember that a pagan vine cannot produce holy fruit. An apple tree cannot produce oranges because it will always be an apple tree. And the fruit of yoga is not holy just because you are willing it to be. And when you are willing something, to be a certain way, well, or putting your own definitions on things and sort of bypassing what is true, sort of making your subjectivity bigger than what is objective, then um, that's a time that calls for serious Bible work and serious prayer. So like always, I'm just going to encourage you to get back to your Bible. Um, like all things, take it to the Lord. And remember that his word will never contradict itself. So, again, you can find me on Instagram. Thank you so much for all your patience waiting for the release of this episode. Like I said at the very beginning, it's been a lot. Um, moving 900 miles away from everything I've known. But I love Tennessee. I'm so blessed that the Lord brought me here. I'm so blessed that he saved my fiancé. And... Um, I'm so blessed for my life. Uh, there's, you know, not to say that there's not obstacles along the way, because there certainly are, and there certainly have been many obstacles since moving here, as I mentioned, the financial aspect. But at the end of the day, I know the Lord has me. And, you know, he's got this. And I'm going to be okay, and I am okay. I'm more content than I've ever been in my life. Even when things are, are rattled, I'm solid. And it's because I have the strength of the Lord now. It's because of him. And we are just about a year here. Wow, we are here. We're a year in. So 
I'm a year into my walk with Jesus. It's December 2022. It was December 2021 when I laid it all down before his feet, gave up my old podcast. And now look where I am. I'm in this new state by the grace of God that I've always wanted to live. And he is providing for me and blessing me and helping me every step of the way. And it is my prayer for you, listener, that he would bless you abundantly, that he would make his presence known to you, that he would speak to you through his word, that he would convict you of your sin, that he would lead you to repentance and to the foot of the cross every single day, because we all need to be led to the foot of the cross every single day. We all have areas we fall short, and so I just pray that he works on your heart daily, that you seek him daily because he is the vine. Jesus Christ is the vine. And that fruit is eternal. And it is holy. And it is perfect. And it is love. And everything else is a counterfeit to what is the absolute perfection of Jesus Christ and his saving grace. May God be with all of you. Follow me on Instagram. Follow the links in the show notes. And I'll talk to you again, hopefully real soon. God bless.